inherent in liberal democracy is an assumption, a hope, a belief that free people will use their liberty to choose good over evil, right over wrong, virtue over vice. For that reason, the United States continues to espouse civil liberties, including that precious first freedom of religion, which informs the choices we must make in this life. Welcome back to the Humble Jurist Podcast. Today, we are listening to Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He spoke at the 2013 J. Reuben Clark Law Society Annual Conference held at Georgetown University. In his remarks, he addresses themes of faith, family, and religious freedom. Take a listen. Well, I'm intimidated uh, to be here. I'm just quick to say that right out of the chute. Uh, and all I can, the only way I can put that in context is to uh, tell you one of my favorite Ernest Wilkinson stories. <laughs> Ernest being a terrific link between Washington, D.C. and Brigham Young University and the law school. In the latter part of his tenure at the university, Ernest gave a significant committee assignment uh, to a group of faculty members led by a very distinguished faculty member who was, as I recall, teaching in the liberal arts or the behavioral sciences or something. Don't remember exactly what the assignment was and don't really remember who the faculty member was, but he was an able man in any case. And when the time came for the report, uh, the committee submitted their findings complete with recommendations. Ernest went absolutely ballistic. I don't know what the findings and recommendations were that he wanted, but they obviously were not these. He went red in the face, chewed on the inside of his cheek as he was wont to do, generally raged unrestrained for several minutes. The wallpaper peeled back in a place or two, lights in the room flickered. All breathing by everyone present ceased. And then as quickly as he had exploded, Ernest grew absolutely calm. A more natural color returned to his face. He stopped chewing his cheek. His eyes came back into focus. The electric circuit serving the room and the man came back to normal. <laughs> and with a steady gaze out his window toward the snowy summit of Mount Tipanogos, a gaze I myself would later make, Ernest threw the report on the desk and in full philosophical resignation muttered to no one in particular, well, what can you expect from a man not trained in the law? Can you imagine the indictment I feel <laughs> as I stand before you tonight, not trained in the law? It's almost more than I can bear. Even in my 73rd year, I stand before you ashamed. <laughs> I apologize. In spite of this severe handicap, I will do my best. And we'll try to be brief, lest I see some of you going red in the face and chewing the inside of your cheek. <laughs> of the many issues we could discuss tonight, may I touch on just three that my brethren and I talk a good deal about these days as we look at the world around us in the initial years of the 21st century. You will recognize quickly that they're not necessarily new issues and they are not uniquely Latter-day Saint in nature, though they may increasingly be Latter-day in nature. 
They are, I am sure, things you've thought about as LDS professionals, LDS parents, LDS citizens in communities large and small. The three issues, faith, family, and religious freedom. In his influential book of a few years ago, A Secular Age, Charles Taylor called secularism the shift from a society in which it was virtually impossible not to believe in God to one in which faith, even for the staunchest believer, is only one human possibility among others. Belief in God is no longer axiomatic. Our era has been given other labels, post-Christian and post-modern, to name two, but the air of a peace with Taylor's thesis, such an age, whatever it's called, has created a climate for popularizing the diminution or minimizing of religious faith in a way that is unprecedented in Western culture, or certainly in American culture. Just so very few years ago, anyone openly advocating atheism would surely have had a scarlet A seared upon his or her breast as a warning to all who would come near. But listen now to Richard Dawkins. Only the willfully blind could fail to implicate the divisive force of religion in most, if not all, of the violent enmities of the world today. Those of us who have for years politely concealed our contempt for the dangerous collective delusion of religion need to stand up and speak out. And many have. After Sam Harris published his provocative The End of Faith in 2005, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, Dawkins himself, and their new band of atheists have achieved, called New Atheists, have achieved near-celebrity status, publishing a deluge, a deluge of texts decrying belief in God. Hitchens spoke for most of them when he said, One reason I've always detested religion is its sly tendency to insinuate the idea that the universe is designed with you in mind, or even worse, that there is a divine plan. Of course, Brother Hitchens has just recently passed away. And I note genuinely and with all my affection for missionary matters prompting me that he may now have newer views on the idea of a divine plan. <laughs> Never mind that militant atheism is the ultimate untenable position simply because it would take someone with God's omniscience and omnipresence to be sure that nowhere in the universe was there such an omniscient and omnipresent being. Catch 22. But I digress with philosophical nitpicking. We have the larger ranks of the agnostics, the more nuanced of which pick and choose from the smorgasbord of religion, admiring the rational or the service-oriented or the pro-social parts of religion while eschewing any claims of ultimate truth, doctrines of salvation, or considerations of life after death. But there are severe problems with such positions because the historical fact of the matter is these, and I quote, vague, uplifting, non-doctrinal religiosity doesn't actually last very long, nor does it withstand anything approaching the tragic in human experience. As one national commentator has written, the religions that grow, sucker, and motivate people to perform heroic acts are theologically rigorous, very arduous in practice, and certainly definite in their convictions about what is true and what is false. I loved what Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of Great Britain said a few years ago in this same vein. I quote, You read Jane Austen, and you put it back on the shelf, and it makes no further demand on you until you feel like reading it again. But you read a sacred text, 
and you put it back on the shelf and it is still making a demand on you long after you've tried to forget it. It is saying this is a truth to be lived. That is the difference between religion and culture. Unless you hear a command or an obligation that comes from beyond you, and I would add above you, you will not be able to generate sustainable, actionable faith. But such persuasive insight notwithstanding, the cultural shift of our day, including in the United States, continues to be characterized by less and less affiliated, affiliation with organized or institutional religion. In the last five years alone, the religiously unaffiliated have increased from just over 15% to just under 20% of all U.S. adults, the Pew Forum on Religious Life recently reported. Their ranks now include, I continue the quote, more than 13 million self-described atheists and agnostics, as well as nearly 33 million people who profess some kind of devotion to things spiritual but say they have no particular religious affiliation. This trend is more severe in the younger age ranges, with one-third of all U.S. adults under 30 now counted among the religiously unaffiliated. Allow me an aside here. Inasmuch as more than two-thirds of the religiously unaffiliated nevertheless do say they believe in God, it may well be that part of the reason for this drift away from formal church affiliation may have something to do with how churches are perceived. More than two-thirds of those recently polled by the Gallup organization listed their reasons for disaffection as the perception that religious institutions are too concerned with money and too entangled in politics. A word to the wise for all churches. Nevertheless, in the face of such waning religiosity, or at the very least waning religious affiliation, Latter-day Saints and other churches must be ever more effective in making the persuasive case for why religious belief and institutional identity are more relevant than ever and deserve continued consideration and privilege within our society. Such appeals, however, will be met with increasingly sophisticated arguments, including from some in the legal profession. Perhaps you've all seen, seen Brian Leiter's book, why Tolerate Religion? In it, Leiter, professor of jurisprudence and director of the Center for Law, Philosophy, and Human Values at the University of Chicago Law School, argues that Western democracies are wrong to single out religious liberty for special legal protections. Fortunately, he does make a considerable case for freedom of conscience, which for us is half a loaf, a very important half. But his argument does, in the end, undercut institutional protections that have been important in the past and may be even more important in the multicultural future of this country. It is encouraging that at least at present, our First Amendment commits us to the more protective interpretation of religious freedom. We will see what future interpretations might bring. Speaking of this issue, clearly one of the most impressive of all recent statements on the subject of religious liberty comes from Michael McConnell, professor and director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford and a former U.S. Court of Appeals judge in the Tenth Circuit. From remarks recently made at the Ethics and Public Policy Center here in Washington, he says, and I quote, the framers of our Bill of Rights thought that religious freedom deserved double-barreled protection. Americans would have the right of free exercise of their chosen faith, and government was forbidden to foster or control religion by means of an establishment of religion. Today, an increasing number of scholars and activists say that religion is not, that religion is not so special after all. 
Churches are just another charity. Faith is just another ideology. And worship is just another weekend activity. All Americans, believers and non-believers alike, should resist this argument. The religion clauses of the Constitution were the culmination of centuries of theological and political debate over the proper relationship between spiritual and temporal authority. Religion is an institution, a worldview, a set of personal loyalties, a locus of community, an aspect of identity, and a connection to the transcendent. Other parts of human life may serve one or more of these functions, but none other serves them all. To believers, the right to worship God in accordance with conscience is the most important of our rights. To non-believers, it is scarcely less important to be free of government imposition of a religion they do not accept. So the drama of the 20th, 21st century unfolds, but as a point of reference, we may do well to remember this from the original American drama of the late 18th century. In his moving farewell address, George Washington said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason, and experience, they both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in the exclusion of religious principle. As a counterpart statement in the same spirit, John Adams said to the officers of the Massachusetts militia, just a few years later, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unless it is bridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. It was said a long time ago that the Americans combine notions of religion and liberty so intimately in their minds that it's impossible to make them conceive of one without the other. May it ever be so. Now a word about family. According to Professor Amy L. Wax of the University of Pennsylvania Law School, decreasing commitment to traditional marriage and the declining birth rates that go with this pose an urgent and unavoidable challenge both to our continuation as a society and to our very conception of the worth of human existence. In a recent book review, she asks whether the demographic implosion is a response to practical costs and benefits, or does it tell us something deeper about a loss of purpose and faith? In an article in the Weekly Standard, Jonathan Last says it is the latter. He argues that the loss of religion in America has contributed to the decline in marriage, birth rates, family solidarity, and a robust democracy. Marriage is what makes the entire Western project of liberalism, the dignity of the human person, the free market, and the limited democratic state possible. This plea for marriage is underscored by our friends at the Witherspoon Institute. They write, the foundation for a productive household begins with marriage. Other arrangements cannot measure up, not for the child, not for the couple, not for society, and certainly not for the economy. If marriage makes the world and economy go round, these newer family structures truncate productivity and society begins to limp. The gifted Michael Novak takes that focus on marriage onto this eloquent commentary 
on the larger family. Quote, Clearly, the family is the seedbed of economic skills, money habits, attitudes toward work, and the arts of financial independence. The family is a stronger agency of educational success than the school. The family is a stronger teacher of religious imagination than the church. Political and social planning in a wise social order begin with the axiom, what strengthens the family strengthens society. Highly paid, mobile, and restless professionals may disdain the family, having been nurtured by its strengths, but those whom other agencies desert have only one institution in which to find essential nourishment. The role of a father, a mother, and of children with respect for them is the absolutely critical center of social force in this world. Even when poverty and disorientation strike, as over the generations they often do, it is family strength that most defends individuals against alienation, lassitude, or despair. The world around the family is fundamentally unjust. The state and its agents and the economic system and its agencies are never fully to be trusted. One could not trust them in Eastern Europe, in Sicily, or in Ireland, and one cannot trust them here. One unforgettable law has been learned painfully through all the oppressions, disasters, and injustices of the last thousand years. If things go well with the family, life is worth living. When the family falters, life falls apart. With current statistics telling us that worldwide there are 40 million abortions per year, and that 41% of all births in the United States are to women who are not married, we should be declaring boldly that inherent in the very act of creation is for both parents a lifelong commitment to and responsibility for the child they created. No one can with impunity terminate that life, neglect that care, nor shirk that responsibility. Paul wrote to Timothy, but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. If Paul could see our day, surely he would repeat that counsel and would mean more than providing physical nourishment, essential as that is. If we want democracy to work and society to be stable, parents must nourish a child's mind and heart and spirit as well. Generally speaking, no community of whatever size or definition has enough resources in time or money or will to make up for what does not happen at home. So rather than redefining marriage and family, as we see increasing numbers around us trying to do, our age ought to be reinforcing and exalting that which has been the backbone of simple civilization since the dawn of it. I leave with you this final quote on the subject from David Brooks. At some point in the past generation, people around the world entered what you might call the age of possibility, another label for our day. They became tolerant of any arrangement that might close off their intolerant of any arrangement that might close off their personal options. The transformation has been liberating and it's leading to some pretty astounding changes. For example, for centuries most human societies forcefully guided people into two-parent families with a father and a mother who were devoted to each other. Today that sort of family is increasingly seen as just one option among many. My view is that the age of possibility, still quoting Brooks, is based on a misconception. People are not better off when they are given maximum personal freedom to do simply what they want. People are better off when they are enshrouded in commitments that transcend personal choice. Commitments, in this case, to traditional marriage and time-honored family life. May I now say something about freedom of religion with its underlying girder of freedom of conscience 
as the last of our three contemporary issues tonight. In Dostoevsky's masterpiece, The Brothers Karamazov, we find one of literature's most enduring meditations on the complexity of freedom. In the section featuring the Grand Inquisitor, a clergyman interrogates the Savior after he's returned to earth only to be arrested by the church's authorities. For the Grand Inquisitor, what Jesus brought into the world was freedom, writes Simon Critchley, specifically the freedom of faith. And this is where we perhaps begin to sympathize with the Grand Inquisitor. He says that for 1,500 years, Christians have been wrestling with this idea of freedom. The Grand Inquisitor says that he himself, when younger, went into the desert, lived on roots and locusts, and tried to attain the perfect freedom espoused by Jesus. But now, he says, it's ended and over for good. After 15 centuries of struggle, the church has at last vanquished freedom and has done so to make men happy." Close quote. Aside from condemning the traditional Christianity of the day, the sadness here, of course, is that the Grand Inquisitor's position is in the end tragic. He yields to the thought that the truth which sets us free is too demanding, too insistent, ultimately a bridge too far. But as Christ himself taught, so say we, that although freedom is demanding, it's not too demanding. The Father's plan and his beloved Son's gift optimistically endow humans with both the ability and responsibility to make choices with the hope, indeed the confidence, that we will ultimately choose that which benefits the individual and the larger society in which those individuals live. At its best, this is precisely the hope of democracy as well. Inherent in liberal democracy is an assumption, a hope, a belief that free people will use their liberty to choose good over evil, right over wrong, virtue over vice. For that reason, the United States continues to espouse civil liberties, including that precious first freedom of religion, which informs the choices we must make in this life. Does religious freedom and its open expression matter beyond one's individual faith or particular religious persuasion, church affiliation, if you will? Well, allow me a long anecdote on this subject from our friend Clayton Christensen, who recently said, I learned the importance of this question in a conversation 12 years ago with a Marxist economist from China who was nearing the end of a year's fellowship in Boston, where he had come to study two topics that were absolutely foreign to him, democracy and capitalism. Before he left, I asked my friend if he'd learned anything here on these topics that was surprising or unexpected. His response was immediate. I had no idea how critical religion is to the functioning of democracy and capitalism. He said, in your past, most Americans attended a church or a synagogue every week. These were institutions that people respected. When you were there from your youngest years, you were taught that you would voluntarily obey the law, that you should respect other people's property, that you should not steal. You're taught never to lie and to respect the life and freedom of others, the same as your own. Americans followed these rules because they had come to believe that even if the police didn't catch them when they broke a law, God would catch them. 
Democracy works because most people, most of the time, voluntarily obey law. You can say the same for capitalism, he concluded. It works because Americans have been taught in their churches that they should keep their promises and not tell lies. An advanced economy can function only if people can expect that when they sign contracts, the other people will voluntarily uphold their obligations. Capitalism works only when people, when nearly all people, voluntarily keep their promises. Clayton says, I thought of Lord John Melcher Moulton, the great English jurist, who wrote that the probability that democracy and free markets will flourish in a nation is proportional to the extent of obedience one can make to the unenforceable. Fortunately, we're hanging on to some symbols of what the founders gave us by way of such a public religious heritage, though in light of what Clayton just shared with us, you may find this as ironic as I do that it comes from someone in mainland China. Recently, there, on Chinese social media, the religious iconography of the inauguration ceremony stimulated an interesting discussion about the role of faith in American democracy. I quote from that social media. Some Chinese find it unbelievable that this secular country's democratically elected president was sworn in with his hand on a Bible, not the Constitution, and facing a court justice, not Congress. But actually, this is the secret, the, the bloggers continuing, actually this is the secret of America's constitutional democracy. Above it is natural law, guarded by a grand justice. And below it is a community of Christians, unified by their belief. Now, of course, America is more than a community of Christians. But it may be sufficient to note that at least someone in China sees enough evidence or knows enough history to believe that America still has a strong streak of Christianity in her. We hope so. We pray so. Faith family, and freedom. Big issues with great complexities. Big issues inextricably linked with the hope and promise of democracy. Big issues that are intertwined, interlinked, and interlocked so tightly that when one of them is struck, the other two are damaged. That when one of them is cut, the other two bleed. Whatever our challenges, I take great encouragement in this thought from the most insightful observer of American culture who has ever written on the subject, but who was, irony of ironies, not an American himself. Alexis de Tocqueville said, The greatness of America lies not only in her being more enlightened than any other nation, but also in her ability to make mistakes that can be repaired. Whatever those mistakes are, they can be repaired. And whatever our strengths are, they can be maintained. You are among the finest and best trained we have to defend, to advocate, to plead, to appeal for great faith, strong families, and the religious freedom for which and upon which this republic was founded. God bless you in the powerful and virtuous practice of the law. Thank you.